0: Happy New Year, and welcome back to another episode of Better Than I Found It, the podcast all things college golf. You're listening to Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor University. I've got a little something different for you today. I don't really have a guest to interview. Instead, I'd like to talk to you about something that I do every single day in my coaching life, and that is journaling. Uh, A lot of young coaches in the last several years have asked me why I take the time to do it and what I get from going through the process of journaling. So I thought I might like to give you a sense of what it's like to journal every day, why I do it, and and what the benefits are. I always journaled growing up. I I guess I got the idea from reading Ben Hogan's Five Lessons, The Modern Fundamentals of Golf. Late in chapter five, he wrote the following. I find it helpful if I jot down after practicing, exactly what I've been working on and precisely how it's coming along. I looked at it and there was an image of Hogan writing in a notebook and I thought to myself I need to journal as well. And I guess I think I've probably taken that advice and put it on steroids because I've been journaling ever since whether I was a player or a coach or both. I've always kept yearly team journals, I still do today, which basically includes everything the team does on a daily basis, every qualifying round, every team meeting, every individual meeting, every tournament round, all the post-tournament summaries, everything about the team on a yearly journal, I still keep that one. But in August of 2013, I started another journal. I had been let go at Oklahoma State in June and was sitting in my assistant coach's office at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa on the very first day of practice. And to me, I thought, you know, I've, I've got a great opportunity here. I don't know how long I'll be in Alabama, but I do know that I'm probably gonna get another chance to coach again one day. I need to be ready and prepared to be a better coach for those players, whoever they may be. So I got a another journal, a nine by, or a, nine by a 10 or whatever the size is of a journal and started writing. Uh, things that worked for me. So I entitled it Stuff That Works, and I've told coaches through the years that, that I, I've written in this Stuff That Works journal ever since August of 2013. In fact, I'm up to volume four at this time. But in this Stuff That Works volumes, in each of the four of them, I, I write inspiring stories about athletes or famous people that have inspired me. I write great quotes that I have used to make a point to a player or a team through the years. Uh, practice sessions that were beneficial to an individual or a team, advice from other coaches, tons and tons of advice from other coaches through the years. When I hear something I love, I write it down. Individual meetings with players, things I've said to a player that did or didn't work, either one, mistakes I've made and the inherent lessons that I learned because of those mistakes, and significant outtakes from players' tournament summaries and reflections. So, In the Stuff That Works journal, basically, I'm documenting anything that has worked in the past or anything that I think works today and that definitely I want to remember in the future. The main purpose of Stuff That Works, the journaling that I do every day, is to document things that work for me that I want to recall later so that I'll go back to and refer when I'm struggling with a player, struggling with uh, motivation, whatever it may be, if I'm not in a good space. If I've got it written down in my own handwriting, I can go back and look and see what was working. Uh, I don't merely just write to be writing. I've, I've been guilty of that in the past. But instead, I always check myself to make sure that whatever I'm putting down is significant things that will help me in my journey or that I've learned in my journey. I think this is great for any young coach, any veteran coach, anybody playing the game for a living. Journaling is an incredible way to actually learn more, and to document what you're learning. Uh, Dr. Brett McCabe, who I respect and does a great job with sports psychology and just in general player development all sports, uh, wrote recently, journaling allows you to see things from a different perspective, especially when you read it at a later date. Your motivations and your motiva- uh, emotional state change over time. So reviewing your past performances in life and in sport to see where you were at that time can be extremely valuable i absolutely agree with dr mccabe 100 percent on that i think it's very valuable to go back and see what was working for you at any given time and how it could help you today so today i thought i'd just share a few of the entries through the years from stuff that works um, i'm actually going to be reading Exactly what I wrote when I wrote it down. Some of these are from memory from years, years past. Some actually happened on a particular day, and I wrote them down immediately. But either way, they're things I wanted to remember. So I'm going to start with um, maybe three small stories that that all relate to entitlement, which to me is as a coach of college golfers, we, we fight that. Uh, we, we fight the urge to do too much for them. We are guilty of doing too much for them. And in the process, players, and the same thing can happen with parenting or high school coaches or junior golf directors or whomever, we, we try to do too much for the player and, and they essentially become entitled without even trying to become entitled. It's something, in my opinion, that weakens a player and weakens a coach too. So I'll begin with the first story. Um, in December of 1989... I was a high school assistant coach, and I was getting ready to do some student teaching, and I didn't really have all all I needed for student teaching, so here's what I wrote. In December of 89, my high school golf team found out that I was going to buy some shoes to wear during my student teaching experience, which would begin in January. They came to me and asked my shoe size because they wanted to get me a pair of Kolhan loafers uh, the shoes retailed for approximately $130 a pair at the time. and was obviously humbled by the offer, but I explained to them if they really wanted to do something to help me, like spend $130 on me, I would get much more use out of two pair of less expensive loafers. Uh, I mentioned the, the company Dexter because I thought they were about $65 a piece. The kids looked at me like I had three heads, they were completely dumbfounded. How could you not want Kohlheins, they asked themselves. And I was just as dumbfounded looking back on it because to me, I was I thought if they're wanting to spend the $130, wouldn't would it be better to get me two pair of shoes? I would last longer. it take me into my co- uh, teaching career, actually. So I, I really just didn't understand where they were coming from on that one. Uh, the second story comes from spring of 2008. I was a golf coach at Oklahoma State University and uh, anyway, I I, w- th- I wrote in my journal. I was parking my car in the parking lot at Carston Creek yesterday. It was a <clears throat> Buick four door. The car was part of a wagon wheel program where c- local car dealers gave OSU golf coaches or a- OSU coaches a new car every six thousand miles. In return, the athletics department gave the car dealer season tickets, parking passes, et cetera, et cetera. It was an incredible perk. For me as a coach, that I appreciated very much. When I got out of the car, one of my players asked me, Hey, coach, why do you drive a Buick? I know the athletic director and the football coach drive a Denali. You should tell your car dealer that you want a Denali, or at least something better than a Buick. I answered, Okay, I understand what you're asking, so let me get this straight. You want me to tell a man who's giving me a car every 6,000 miles? that it isn't good enough. You want me to tell him that he needs to upgrade his gift to me? And my player looked at me and said, well, coach, it sounds stupid when you say it that way. And I said, it sounds stupid because it is stupid. It's also ungrateful. Uh, He just looked at me again, dumbfounded, like, how could you not possibly want a Denali or a better vehicle? And I thought to myself, well, I, I guess it would be great to have. But on the other hand, I uh, would be very ungrateful to to look a car dealer in the eye and tell him that. Along those same lines, um, in the fall of 2012, I I had a player on the team named Sean Einhaus. Uh, His family uh, was from both Germany and Nepal, and Sean had become a good friend of Martin Keimer, who was also a German player. So I wrote in my journal, um, and I, I actually wrote this one, like when I first started writing in my journals. In the fall of 2012, Sean Einhaus invited Martin Keimer to spend the week before the Ryder Cup at Karsten Creek. The Ryder Cup would be played in Chicago that year. Each day, while the kids were in class, Martin would go to Karsten Creek, work out, shower, and then practice until lunch. He then played and practiced with my players, especially Sean, all in the afternoons. I'd asked Sean if he would like For Martin to come to our house for dinner before he left for Chicago. He did, and Martin spent the last night in Stillwater at our house. My wife Pam cooked an amazing dinner, and we all sat around the table visiting afterward. He talked about his excitement of playing in his second Ryder Cup, and then finally I asked him, Martin, you've been here for several days. I need to know what you think of my team. And he looked at me kind of with a puzzled look on his face. He got sort of an uncomfortable look also, and then turned to Sean and shook his head. I told him it was okay, that all I wanted was his honest opinion. He looked at Sean again. He said, well, Sean, should I really tell him? And Sean shook his head. Yes, go ahead, coach. Or go ahead, Martin, tell coach. He said, I think, and this is quoting Martin, I think your kids don't appreciate all you have done for them. These facilities are so amazing, and they just take them for granted. This would be a fantastic place for any professional to work on their golf. I don't have anything like this available to me, and I've won a major championship. If I did, I would certainly appreciate it, be thankful for it, and use it to my advantage. These kids on your team are too cocky, and they don't show enough respect. That may sound harsh, but I believe it's the truth. (laughs) Stunned, I sat there and I told him, well... Martin, you're right. And I felt the same way about a lot of it, of the players that I've been recruiting through the years. And then asked him about why he thinks that he has this perspective, which I thought was very impressive and very mature for a kid 27 years of age. And he said the following, my parents taught my brother and I some pretty simple things when we were very young, love, honesty, discipline, and respect. And that's all you really need to be happy and successful in this life. And I've always tried to live my life that way. Martin's very mature perspective and his incredible respect shows to, to everyone around him and made me a huge fan of his, I must admit. So I wrote that right after, uh, well, about a year after Martin had, had had dinner at our house. And I thought to myself, you know, I want to remember that. I, I want to use that story with a player sometime in the year, through the years when I've got a player who's being entitled or expecting too much or, or not pulling his own weight, that type of thing. Um, another story from a different, uh, a different uh, Stuff That Works journal is when I was a high school golf coach at Edmond North High School in Edmond, Oklahoma, uh, we had one of the best high school golf teams in the state every year. We were really good. My kids probably got a little full of themselves. Uh, unfortunately, I guess that's probably just part of the territory when you have a dominant program. But when I was a coach at Edmond North High School, I wrote the following. When I was coach at Edmund North, we had a very prominent student-athlete on campus. Her name was Shannon Miller. Before her career was over, she would become the most decorated female gymnast in American history. Something uh, that she showed up literally in two consecutive Olympic Games, several world championships in a row. She was one of the most amazing gymnasts in the history of the United States. One day it occurred to me that I should really take advantage of this incredible resource. If she would consider speaking to my golf team, I asked her one day, and she accepted. She said she would do it. At a team meeting that afternoon, I announced we would be having a a guest speaker, Shannon Miller, the next day for practice. One of my players raised his hand and asked, Why, Coach McGraw? What can she possibly teach me about golf? I shot back. She won't be able to teach you anything about golf. That she can darn well tell you a thing or two about excellence, about sacrifice, about setting goals, and about being the best you can be in her particular sport. In her case, being the best in the world. You want to learn that or not? And so the player didn't have much to say to me then, but it reminded me that we literally need to be looking out at all different genres, all different professions, every endeavor to find people that are successful and that are the best at what they do. And I wrote this story down because I wanted to never forget the fact that one of my high school players who would not even go on to play division one golf couldn't didn't think he could learn anything from the best gymnast at the time, the best gymnast in the world. Uh, Again, I used the term dumbfounded a couple of times, but that one really shocked me there. now a story about an act, a random act of kindness. Um, when I grew up, uh, I was the son of a golf professional. My dad was the professional at the Ponca City Country Club all my years growing up in Ponca City, Oklahoma. Uh, so I had opportunities to interact with all of the members out there on a daily basis, whether it was playing golf with them or cleaning their golf clubs, washing their golf carts, picking up their range balls, whatever it was doing. Uh, at the golf course, I was doing it for sure. Um, so this was a random act of kindness that i've never forgotten, and i 've really never told anybody about until this time so here 's what I wrote in my journal after graduating from college in May of nineteen eighty two I made the decision to turn pro after the transmiss. my first event as a pro was the Kansas open where I made $283 a week or so or later, I was filling out my entry for the PGA tour qualifying. When I suddenly realized I didn't have the $2,000 for the entry fee. I thought about people who might be able to help me with the money. And it occurred to me that there were dozens of members of the punk city country club whom I dealt with on a daily basis for over 10 years. They all saw my sacrifices that I had made and how hard I worked, And one such member that came to mind was a pharmacist in Ponca City named Julie Berman. So I rang him up and asked him if I could meet with him. I drove from Edmond to Ponca City the next day and told him of my dream to play the PGA Tour. But also about my dilemma about not having the money to pay for the entry fee for the tour qualifying. Without hesitation, he told me he would do it. And he wrote me a check on the spot for $2,000. I asked him about a payment plan and he said, let's make it a 10-year balloon note. Pay me back whenever you can during that time. Is that okay, Mike? We shook hands and I drove back to Edmond and with $2,000 to pay the entry fee. For the record, I missed that tour school that fall. And for the next three years, I played many tours, state opens and pro-ams while also logging time at Kicking Bird Golf Course as an assistant pro. I gave lessons, rang up green fees, cleaned the grill in the restaurant, swept the carpet, picked up range balls and parked carts, just anything to make a buck. I would mix in practice and play whenever I could, and would go out on trips to play mini tour events when I had saved enough money. The problem was I usually came home with empty pockets. All the while, in the back of my mind, was the fact that I would one day pay Julie Berman back the money he had once lent me. Once my playing days were officially over, and I decided that my full-time passion was coaching. I began saving every penny I could. One day, sometime in middle 1989, I had accumulated exactly two thousand dollars, and literally that was all the money I had that was additional. And I rang up Julie and set up a meeting to, with him at his pharmacy in Ponca City. I walked into his office and put twenty one hundred dollar bills on his desk he looked at me and asked, Mike, what is that? I said, Julie, it's the money you loaned me for tour school back in 1982. He looked at the money. He looked at me, smiled and said, keep it, Mike. Just knowing you'd pay me back is payment enough. That was an incredible gesture by Julie Berman. I've never forgotten it. He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Great guy to be around, but Just that act of kindness reminded me, and I wrote it down because it was like, I want to remember you can do random acts of kindness just out of nowhere, and they mean so, so much. I've never forgotten Julie Berman and what that meant to me. The next story I call Can't Judge a Book by its cover, and this is when Boone met Ricky. So... Uh, T. Boone Pickens was a great benefactor of Oklahoma State Athletics and the university. And obviously, Ricky Fowler was a player that I had recruited from Southern California to come to Stillwater to play college golf. So um, I wrote this story down uh, years later, obviously. But it was a story I wanted to remember because um, I, I just think it's you can't judge the book by the cover so often. And this is what maybe I learned a lesson about Boone as well. Here's how the story goes. Ricky Fowler transitioned in college as one, the number one amateur in the world, something only a couple of players had accomplished before. He went 3-1-0, leading the U.S. Walker Cup team to victory at Royal County Down in September in Northern Ireland. His first college event, the preview, he shot uh, 69-73-73 to finish fourth. He followed that by winning the Olympia Fields Fighting Illini Collegiate with a second-round 63 tie course record. So to say he'd gotten off to a fast start in college would be an understatement. Anyway, back in Stillwater, the OSU golf hype machine was in full swing, touting Ricky as the next great cowboy. T. Boone Pickens was already an iconic OSU cowboy, having graduated from Oklahoma A&M in 1951, later creating Mesa Petroleum, and becoming one of the most successful independent oil men in the history of the United States. Uh, Once asked Mike Holder what made T. Boone Pickens so successful, he said, well, he's obviously a hard worker, but all I know is if you threw Boone out in the desert, took away every material possession he owned, and threw him out in the middle of a desert in a week, he'd own the desert. And that was a perfect description of T. Boone Pickens. Adding further to his OSU legend, Mr. Pickens had given hundreds of millions of dollars to Oklahoma State in an effort to transform his university. His impact on Oklahoma State and his legacy there was secure. Since it was very early in Ricky's freshman year, the two had never met. And one weekend that fall, we were in Stillwater. OSU had a home football game. And as was his custom in those days, Mr. Pickens flew to Stillwater on Friday afternoon, moved into his room in the Boone Pickens Lodge at Carston Creek, and he would have dinner that night in the clubhouse. As I was leaving Carston. I saw Mr. Pickens walking into the clubhouse, so I went out of my way to say hello. Hello, Mr. Pickens, we're going to win that game tomorrow? He shot back, never mind that. Let's talk about this new hotshot freshman you have on the team. Um, aren't you talking about Ricky? I asked. He said, yes. He said, his hair is way too long. You should tell him to visit the local barber and get that cut off. I thought to myself that if Boone just spent a few minutes with Ricky he would change his mind. So I asked him if he would be okay if Ricky joined him for breakfast on Saturday morning before the football game, and he agreed to the idea. I called Ricky and told him he was having breakfast with Mr. Pickens tomorrow morning. He is meeting you at Karsten at eight o'clock. Be there at 7.50, I told him. Ricky then asked, well, coach, what do I need to do? And I answered, only. Be yourself, nothing more. I was in the golf shop that next morning, when I spied Ricky walking into the restaurant, shake hands with Mr. Pickens, and sat down to eat. About 45 minutes later, Ricky stood up, shook Mr. Pickens' hand again, and left for the locker room to get his clubs for practice. I walked up to Mr. Pickens' table, and he was still seated, and asked him, "'Did you and Ricky have a good chat?' He answered, "'Sit down, coach,' and yes, we did. "'He's a really nice young man, and he can grow his hair as long as he'd like.'" So what I got from that story was Mr. Pickens kind of had his preconceived idea of who Ricky Fowler was, what kind of kid he might be. All he was looking at was the the flashy clothes, the long hair. And he did, he finally, when he got to meet Ricky, he looked past that. Ricky and Boone became very, very close through the years. Mr. Pickens passed away four years ago, but um, before he did that, he and Ricky have both transformed that university. Um. Another story that I've written down that I, I really like, it's not overly inspiring, but it's something I wanted to remember. Uh, one year I was recruiting at the Texas State Junior, and I'll leave the name out of here, just names off of this one. But uh, I was standing next to a, a young coach uh, near the first tee, and he and I were talking. So here's what I wrote in my journal this young coach and I were recruiting at the Texas Junior Amateur. We were standing between the putting green and the number one tee, when, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed his, hot, his college coach walk past. And I asked the young coach, I think that's your college coach over there, isn't it? He looked in that direction, acknowledged that it was, and then turned away and went back to what he was doing, which was watching a player prepare to tee off on number one. I then asked him, aren't you going to go over and say hello? I mean, I know you haven't seen him in quite a while. He said, no, I'm good. I really don't have anything to say to him. Wow, I was a little stunned. That young coach went on to explain to me that his college coach had never really been much of a coach to him at all. He had always been extremely sarcastic, disingenuous, and somewhat dark. He went on to say that the only thing that coach had ever taught him was related to his putting. He made me a better putter. But other than that, he he was absolutely underwhelming and not inspiring at all. I asked that coach really hadn't talked with his college coach since he left college and he didn't see the need to talk to him. Now I stood there trying to process what this young coach had told me and I couldn't make much sense of it. His college coach had failed to make any sort of positive impact on him during his time together. In fact, this young coach made a conscious choice to avoid even saying hello. Perhaps his college coach had taught him something after all, beyond putting. I think maybe he taught him that he himself would never want to be that coach to anybody else. When I think about that, I think, and I left the names obviously anonymous, but it's like, wow, how could you spend four years together and not wanna spend time with that coach. I I vowed at that very moment, I'm gonna write that down because I don't ever wanna be that coach for anyone else. Um, The next story isn't about a coach, it's about a a job interview that I, I took and it was back in 1991, I was a high school golf coach in Edmond, as I mentioned earlier, and the high school coaching position at my high school, Ponca City High School, was gonna be open in a year or so, and they. this is basically a job interview for that position. So here's what I wrote in the journal. In May of 1991, I was the assistant golf coach at Edmond High School. We were coming off our third consecutive Oklahoma State High School Championship. Head coach Rick Leith and I knew that we were in the middle of a special era of high school golf relative to success. With three of our best players all returning, 1992 looked like another banner year. The future was indeed bright. That same month, I received a call from my high school coach, Jerry Orr, who was no longer the golf coach at Ponca City High School. He was now in private business. But his son, Casey, was going to be a freshman at Ponca City High School that next August. And Jerry and Dan McGregor, the current coach, were talking about the next four years at Ponca City High School with Casey, John Ron, and others. Uh, both men, they thought they had the makings of a special team as well. And they were talking, it became apparent to Jerry that Dan was also considering retirement within the next couple of years. After talking some more, Dan offered, I'll tell you what I'll do. If we can get Mike to come to Ponca City, uh, he can be my replacement in a couple of years. And he could still also be Casey's coach all four years. That's all Jerry needed to hear, and he gave me a call that very evening, to discuss. He described the scenario and it sounded very appealing to be going back home trying to build something. I told Jerry that I would give it some thought and would get back to him. I told Rick Leith as well as several of the current future Edmond High School players. Coaching changes happen all the time and at at all levels of competition. This wouldn't be earth-shattering in the world of coaching. In fact, it would barely be noticed and most mostly by the players in Edmond and their parents with whom I had developed strong relationships through the years. After a week of contemplation, I decided the move would be a good one for me, and a date and time and place were set up for an interview. The interview would be on a Friday afternoon in a building across the street from East Junior High School where I had attended grades 7 through 9, so I was very familiar with the territory, to me very comfortable. I met Jerry and Dan outside the meeting room for a few minutes, here's what they told me. There would be several people in this meeting. I was being interviewed for a social studies teaching position, so the principal at the school where I would be teaching would be running the meeting. Also, there would be an athletic director, a parent, a school counselor, among others in the meeting. In their opinion, this was sort of a slam dunk thing. Basically, everyone wanted me to be the new high school coach one day in Ponca And this meeting would be just a mere formality, so the principal at this school could sign off on my hire. After all, I would be a social studies teacher at the school where he was in charge. It all seemed in order, and I was not at all nervous when I sat down at the end of the long meeting table, physically as far away from that principal as was possible in this room. Uh, he began with uh, giving introductions, and the meeting began with the principal opening my file and ask to ask questions. Mike McGraw, it says here that you are currently a social studies teacher in Edmond. It also says that you're a golf coach and you would like to be a coach here as well. I answered yes to both questions. He then asked Are you aware that coaches have traditionally been a stain on the teaching profession? I was stunned. I couldn't believe the words I was hearing. My first thought was, is this guy serious? Is he joking? My answer to him came out in the form of a question. I'm a stain? I'm a stain? I'm afraid I don't understand. To be honest with you, I don't remember a single other word that was said in that meeting. At that point, I'd completely shut down. I knew one thing for sure. I had no intention of going to work for someone who had that degree of disrespect for coaches he obviously hadn't read the letter of recommendation provided provided by my principal jeff edwards at sequoia middle school in edmund or if he, or if he did he completely disregarded it his bias against coaches was obvious despite the lure to ponca city becoming the head coach one day i knew that i didn't want to be there god had other plans for me so i <laughs> I wrote that down because I always wanted to remember it's very, very important the first impression you make on people. If you're recruiting them, if you're talking to a parent, if you're talking to another coach, whoever it may be. And that first impression from that, that administrator, that principal, was dumbfounding. I could not believe what I was hearing. But that was another entry in a journal that I wrote, like, I don't ever want to forget this. I'm not, I'm going to make sure my first impression is is good. Finally, the last story that I have here is from a player here that I coached at Baylor. His name was Colin Kober. Colin was from South Lake, Texas, and one of the best players in the state of Texas, shot the lowest all-time score in an AJGA event, 11 under par, was one of the better players in the state, had won the state high school. And when the summer I got to um, Waco, he was doing all of these different things. And so I knew I would, he'd be a kid, I would recruit. And... So I went through the whole process that fall, watching him play in tournaments, having him in on a couple of visits, and then eventually he committed to Baylor. Now, one of the things that I do in the recruiting process is I make three promises and three promises only. One is that the player will get a degree from Baylor. The second is that if his dream is to play the PGA Tour, that I can't make him a PGA Tour player, but I will help push him closer. I promise I'll push him closer to that dream. And the third uh, promise is that uh, whatever love he had for the game of golf coming into college, that he would love the game as that much or more when he left after four years with me. So that's kind of the premise that I take with every player. And Colin had been through two years at Baylor and really hadn't played in the lineup. He was our sub at Nationals in the spring of 2018. So here's a kid and his teammate, roommate, and like a guy that he was very close to, Cooper Doss. He had already been an All-American at Baylor and was really making an impact on our team, and Colin just hadn't made that impact yet. I kind of knew that. He wasn't very happy, but I hadn't done much about it. So following the NCAA championship at Carson Creek in 2018, we're driving back from Stillwater to Waco, and I've told Ryan Blagg that Colin would be the first end-of-the-year meeting the next day when we got back to Waco. And I said, I'm going to take these meetings and do a little bit different with them this year. And he said, well, how's that? And I said, just just support me. Follow me. And so the next day, Colin came in for his meeting. Um, it was going to be uncomfortable, I felt. In fact, part of my, probably a small percentage of what I was thinking was he was probably coming in to say, Coach, this experiment hasn't worked. I think I'll move on. Um uh, and transfer, which I still haven't had a transfer at Baylor at that time. And so anyway, we sit down. Here's what I wrote in my journal. Postseason meeting with Colin Cover, May 29th, 2018. Colin told me he had come to Baylor because of three promises I had made on his second recruiting visit. One, you'll earn a degree from Baylor. Two, since your dream is to play the PGA Tour, I promise I'll do everything in my power to push you closer to that dream. And three, after spending four years with me, I promise you will love the game as much or more than you did when we first met. In the meeting, I said, Colin, the ground rules for this meeting are going to be a little bit different because I want you to tell me the truth today. And I want to tell you the truth as I know it. Um, And as a coach, you, you know that you can never probably get the player to tell you the complete truth while he's still got eligibility left because he feels like if he told you the absolute truth, you might not take him on trips. you might It might hurt your relationship or whatever it is. But I said, it's obvious to me that you and I need to get closer. We need to be able to communicate better and we haven't done that. He said, I think it's obvious to both of us, Coach, that... I'm going to get my degree at Baylor. Um, The second promise you made to me regarding whether or not I'm closer to my dream of playing the PGA Tour, that remains to be seen. seen. But but I am just as responsible for that as you are. I haven't played very well. But the third promise that you made to me, you failed miserably, and you've fallen short in that third promise. This spring, I hated golf. I hated practice. I didn't really enjoy going to tournaments. I didn't want to be around you. I didn't be, want to be around my teammates. I didn't enjoy anything about the game. You promised me that would never happen. I, uh, I looked at Colin straight in the eye, and I thought to myself, I'm going to cry right now. There's just no way I'm going to get through this without crying because I knew I had failed a player in one of the three simple promises I make. And I said, well, Colin, yeah, I, I guess I understood and knew that you were not happy, but I didn't do anything about it. I was just trying to get this team to the finish line this season, but that stops here today. Here, you and I are going to start communicating. And from this moment forward, if you have something you want to tell me, you just tell me. Um, anyway, that's the entrance entry into the journal that I made that day, because to me, it was, it was crushing that I knew I had let a player down and hadn't done anything about it, even though I knew I was letting him down. Um, so I think my career changed that day when I had that meeting with Colin. And I wrote it down in my journal because I thought that was a turning point. It it always in the back of my mind is, is my player having the experience I promised that he would have. I've got to make sure that that's at the forefront. I mean, obviously, I have to do it within a team environment and all of that. But I made a promise to him. I want to keep that promise. So those are just some of the entries that I've made through the years about stories that have inspired me or that have impressed me enough to want to write them down. Uh, I've also put down thousands, literally thousands of quotes through the years of quotes that I enjoy, quotes that I think would inspire a young player to be better. A perfect example would be uh, Joe DiMaggio, um, who was one of the greatest baseball players of all times was being interviewed uh, by a reporter after a game. And the reporter said, you you do everything with excellence. Why do you hustle on plays that have little effect on the outcome of the game or on your team's standing? And Joe looked at the reporter and said, because there's always some kid who may be seeing me for the first time, and I owe him my best. That was the very first quote I put in Volume 1 of Stuff That Works. Because I always remembered from that moment on, that quote tells me, I owe my player my best every single day, every day. And whatever my best is, that's what he he deserves. You know, that's what it, when we talked about it in recruiting, I told him I would do that. And so I wrote that down as the very first quote. I've put literally thousands of quotes in these four journals that mean a lot to me. And whenever I'm struggling with a player, whenever I'm having an issue with a player, I go in the journals and I try to find a quote that would that would um, sort of make sense to go with the struggle that he's having or that I'm having with him or whatever it is. Sometimes I just give a quote to the team to hopefully inspire them to have a better day at practice, maybe a a great weekend, whatever it may be. So the journals that I have here, the four Stuff That Works journals, also have a lot of quotes in there. So that's kind of, in general, what you're going to see from me. I would remind you finally at the end, these last notes would be, um, I do handwrite my notes. And a lot of people say, well, wouldn't it be better if you put them in a computer to have them saved digitally? And that's probably true. But when I read in my own handwriting, thoughts, the feelings, the attitudes, the emotions, everything I was thinking and feeling when I wrote that particular note or story comes leaping back to the forefront of my mind when it's in my own handwriting. Um, You know, A lot of people say, well, Mike, you've got a great memory. You'll just remember all this. That's not true. Uh, You think you're going to remember everything about a situation or some story or something that that you uh, want to remember, but you you forget a lot. You'd be shocked at how much you forget. Documenting it and writing it down assures you that you'll be able to go back and use it later when you need it. Again, as I said earlier, I don't want to go just go through the motions. I want to write things that will inspire me, benefit me, and benefit my players going forward. So I'm not just writing to be writing. Journaling has been a great, great, great experience for me. I think it makes me a better coach. I think it makes me a more insightful more reflective coach. I think more about what I'm doing on a daily basis. I think it would help any of you. So I want to thank you again for joining me today. And I hope you too will benefit from documenting stuff that works your journey.